Today's reading begins in John 18, um, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, 
Pilate hands him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks, Ro. Do keep that page open. I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at this extraordinary passage together. Father God, we pray that you would give us hearts that want to know the truth, that are open to the truth, whatever the cost, whatever the consequences. Help us, we pray, to be people who long for and love truth. Amen. Uh, Let me add my welcome. My name is Phil. I'm the Associate Minister here. And it's fabulous to be looking at this passage in John this morning as we uh, head into Easter together. Now, before I was an associate minister here, I had a previous life, a previous career anyway, um, uh, anyway as, a, as a lawyer. It wasn't much of a life, I was a lawyer. The, uh, um, and the, the first kind of exposure to a law firm when you're a student is you do a summer internship. Now, the, the internships, everybody applies for them with the, with the city firms, and if your grades are good enough, or your parent is a significant client, uh, you're, you get a, an internship at one of, the, one of the firms and you go along. And ostensibly, the purpose of the, the internship, the vacation scheme, is for you to look at the firm and decide, is this the sort of place where I want to spend 140 hours a week of my life? Uh, is, is this, is this the, the group of people I want to work for? And so they wine you and dine you and show you all the fun bits and you go off at 5 p.m. playing softball in the park in the summer and it's, ooh, it's all great. Of course, it's not really the firm that's on trial. It's not really you making your mind up about the firm. Because there is just an endless supply of eager young graduates with reasonable grades and enormous student debts. And there are a limited number of places. It's actually we who were on trial. And if you didn't work that out, very quickly, uh, you would find you had no chance of a job at the end of it, which is what we all really wanted. And as we come to this passage in John 18 to 19, ostensibly Jesus is on trial. It's what's going on. It's the the main trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. But as we'll see at the end, it is not Jesus who is on trial. It is Pilate. And as John writes, it's not really Pilate who's on trial. As we hear these words, you and I are not sitting in the judge's seat. We are standing in the dock. And the word of God puts us on trial this morning. Now the passage is full of irony. It is a divine comedy where the truth is the opposite of what it appears on the surface. Everything is upside down. You see the irony all the way through. Look with me. Um, The religious leaders, there's irony right at the start in verse 28. They're scrupulously careful not to become ceremonially unclean by by entering the house of of a non-Jewish, a Gentile Roman governor. But they're very happy to lie and cheat and murder to get rid of their rival, Jesus. There's irony with Barabbas a little bit later in 18 verse 40. Jesus is absolutely innocent of rebelling against Rome. He's told them to pay their taxes and respect their authorities. But in deep, deep irony, Pilate ends up freeing in Jesus' place a man who was truly guilty of violent rebellion and condemning the man who's innocent. Uh, You've got Irony with the Roman soldiers. Uh, Chapter 19, verses 1 to 3, they're ordered to flog and humiliate Jesus, and they take to the task with gusto and imagination. They hold a mock coronation with a, a cruel crown of thorns, and they cry, Hail, King of the Jews, in sarcastic veneration. But of course, in an irony lost on them, 
He is the king of the Jews. And they are crowning him. And then the greatest irony of all is hinted at in verses 31 to 32 of of chapter 18. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we've no right to execute anyone they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. The Jewish leaders did not have the right to execute criminals except in a couple of um, situations. And that meant that if Jesus is found guilty... He's not going to die according to Jewish law, which would have meant being stoned to death for blasphemy. Instead, he will be executed as a rebel against Rome, which means crucifixion. And so Jesus' words in John 12, 32 will be fulfilled, that he will indeed be lifted up to bring salvation to all people. The great irony. See, actually, there are so many human explanations for why Jesus dies on a cross in these chapters. Where Judas betrays Jesus, it's naked greed really for him. The disciples desert Jesus, cowardice. That's the reason. The religious leaders condemn Jesus because of jealousy and hatred. The Roman soldiers crown him because of casual brutality. The guilty man Barabbas is exchanged for Jesus due to local custom. The method of death will be crucifixion, Well, just because Israel happens to be under Roman occupation. All these different motivations, all these different factions, all these different coincidences and powers at work. But in the greatest irony of all, at the moment when Jesus seems so weak and powerless, at the moment when he seems to be completely under the power of wicked people, swept along by events, well, actually, this is the moment when everything, everything is going according to God's plan. It's a passage full of ironies, full of ironies, but I want to focus our time actually on the ironies that surround Pontius Pilate, because that's, I think, what John does. He gives Pontius Pilate far more airtime than any of the other gospel writers, and I think he wants us to see in Pontius Pilate a challenge, a warning for you and for me as we hear God's word now. Now, Pilate is in a unique position But the temptations that he faces are actually not hugely dissimilar to the temptations we face. And in particular, the temptation to worry a lot less about what is the truth and a lot more about what will the consequences mean for me. Now, Pilate was a Roman governor of Judea between AD 26 and AD 37. And for the first few years, he had a relatively safe time because he has a powerful patron in Rome, but then his patron died, and now he is politically exposed and in a rather difficult area where there's a lot of rebellion kicking off. So he's vulnerable politically. And there are three ironies that John shows us as we look at how Pilate handles the trial of Jesus. Firstly, he holds a trial, but actually he's got no interest in the truth. Secondly, he wields power, but he's unable to do what he wants or what is right. And thirdly, he sits in the, as a judge, but actually he stands in the dock. Let's look through the passage. Firstly, Pilate holds a trial but has no interest in the truth. Actually, I think when you read, if you, if you have no knowledge of what actually happens in the end, as you start to read this passage, it sounds quite promising. You get a sense from these early, early verses that Pilate has some kind of history with the religious leaders. And he's got no interest in just colluding with their fit-up to get rid of Jesus. Verse 28, John 18. 
Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Now, if you're reading it for the first time, you might think, ah, this is promising. Pilate seems willing to stand up to the religious leaders. He's not just going to see Jesus condemned without a fair trial. We read that they they come to him early in the morning. The, The custom of Roman officials in hot climates was you start work just before dawn and you finish around mid-morning. Nice short day. And as the sun begins to rise, you think, ah, maybe the darkness is losing its hold. Maybe Jesus will survive. But that hope is dashed as soon as Pilate goes in to examine Jesus himself. Verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Pilate's question is is really disbelief and scorn. Am I really meant to believe something pathetic like you is the king of the Jews? Are you supposed to be taken seriously as a threat to Roman rule? Do me a favor. And Jesus clarifies that he is indeed a king but not a threat to Roman rule. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, verse 36. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate's so fixated on this that he rather misses the full import of what Jesus is saying. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate is concerned. Okay, Jesus, are you a threat to Roman rule? That's Pilate's big concern. Are you you genuinely trying to take over this dusty little backwater province of the Roman Empire? And Jesus says, you have totally misunderstood me. Pilate, I'm not a threat to the political system over this dusty little patch of earth. I'm the king of the universe. One day Caesar is going to bow before me. Now at last, Pilate reveals his true colors though in his infamous words in verse 38. What is truth? Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus says. What is truth? retorted Pilate. I don't think it's a postmodern statement Pilate is not a a first-year philosophy undergraduate sat in the student bar after a couple debating the meaning of words and the nature of truth. He's a politician making a very hard-nosed, cynical point. Truth is a luxury, Pilate is saying, a luxury he can't afford. What matters to him is what will keep me in power, what maintains the order, the Pax Romana that he is charged with upholding in this part of the world. And the thing is, those in power are always tempted to ask some form of this question. Truth will never be an ultimate value to you if what really matters is pursuing or clinging to power and position. 
And from here on in, we'll see that for Pilate, truth matters less than power. So when in uh, chapter 19 and verse 12, he realizes word might get back to Rome that he tolerated a rival to Caesar's rule. Well, at that point, the, the truth about Jesus simply ceases to matter. Innocence, guilt, doesn't matter. Pilate will do what works. Been uh, reading the uh, the story of Oleg Gordievsky, the KGB spy who uh, turned traitor and spied for MI6. Incredible story. Ben McIntyre, the perfect spy. Been, well, we've been listening. I said reading it. We've been listening to it on audiobook, and it's a disaster. It's meant to help us, you know, fall asleep at night, but it's so gripping. You end up staying up till three in the morning listening to the end of the chapter. I mean, it is phenomenally good. If you're looking for a read for the for the holidays, I can't recommend it highly enough. But in the late 70s, early 80s, when, when he's spying for Britain uh, inside the KGB residence just up over in Hyde Park, on the edge of Hyde Park, it was a time of huge tension, those of us old enough to remember. The, uh, the latest of the, the kind of production line of, um, of identikit Soviet leaders, Brezhnev's um, finally gone, Andropov is so pickled in vodka that he's barely going to last much longer, but he's now in charge, having led the KGB. He's now the Russian leader, and he's absolutely convinced that the West is preparing a nuclear strike. It's going to launch a first strike on the Soviet Union. And he's got all his forces on a high state of alert. And the call goes out to all the KGB stations, the residents around the world. Find the information that shows that the West is preparing to strike. And they, as Gordievsky writes, they understood. Okay, the truth doesn't matter. All they are interested in is evidence that shows that Britain and America are going to launch an attack. And everybody in the, in the London residence knew that nobody in Britain, none of the British government, were even vaguely interested in starting a war. But they also knew that if they wanted to keep their jobs, then truth had to take a side, be closed away, and instead you said what the bosses wanted to hear. What is truth? Truth will get you sent back to Moscow. Truth, truth will get you a, a long vacation in Siberia. Truth doesn't matter. Now Jesus has declared earlier in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But the question for you and for me is we hear God's word. Are we willing to seek after the truth? Because every time you and I encounter the Bible, we are tempted to ask, even if we don't verbalize it that way, what is truth? We're tempted to, to read God's word and determine not what I think it means, but what am I prepared for it to mean? What am I prepared to do? We determine what we think God's word means by what the cost will be for us. And so when the Bible raises things that are precious to me, relationships, career, money, my attitude to people who deeply hurt me, we can be like the KGB. We've decided already what the Bible can and can't say. We've decided already what the truth is. And our hearts are closed to anything that God might say that might mean radical, costly changes to the life we've decided we want to live. And this passage challenges us, therefore. Do we care about truth the same way that the God who is truth does? 
Does that show in our lives or are we like Pilate? Truth is an easy casualty if it gets in the way of the life I want to live. What is truth, Pilate asks. Because Pilate has no interest in truth, although he holds a trial. Second irony, Pilate wields power, but he's unable to do what is right, unable to do what he wants. He's the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He has the might of the Roman legions at his hand. He can click his fingers and the Roman legions will appear. He has the power of life and death. He can condemn people. But for all that, he is incredibly weak. Now, John emphasizes his weakness rather subtly in some ways. Uh, Pilate is forever on the move. I don't know if you noticed this as it was read for us. He starts inside and then goes outside to the Jewish leaders in verse 29. He then goes back inside to Jesus in verse 33. Goes outside to the religious leaders in verse 38. Back inside to Jesus, 19.1. Outside to the Jewish leaders, verse 4. Inside with Jesus, verse 9. Finally, outside to the religious leaders in verse 13 to deliver his sentence. It gives the impression of a man who's sort of vacillating, who's being swept backwards and forwards, who's who's not in control, who's just completely being turned this way and that. And that impression of a man being swept along by events and out of control only grows through the passage. Uh, Pick it up in verse 38, uh, 1838. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But... It is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. The other gospel writers tell us that by this stage, there was quite a crowd gathered outside Pilate's palace. And so Pilate thinks that he's going to play politics. He's going to leverage his power in a cunning move to undercut the religious leaders. So what he does, is it's a very clever ploy really, he, he pulls up Jesus and he pulls up a violent murderous rebel called Barabbas and he says, I will release to you one of these two as a gesture of Passover goodwill, assuming the crowd's never going to want Barabbas released, they're bound to go for this nice Jesus fellow and then that gets him off the hook because he can say to the religious leaders, well, it wasn't me that failed to condemn Jesus. It was your own people. The problem's not with me. It's with your own people. If you can't lead your people, you can't blame me. But of course, his scheme utterly backfires and he ends up releasing a violent, murderous rebel back into the community. So verses one to seven, he tries another tactic. He uses his judicial power to have Jesus mocked, bloodied and brutally beaten. 19 verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. And then Pilate presents him to the crowd. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. It's as if he's saying, are you satisfied now? He's innocent, but I've had him beaten, dressed up like this, mocked and humiliated. Do you really think anyone is going to follow him now? Is that enough? But the ruse fails, verse 6. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. 
Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. He claimed to be the son of God. Twice, Pilate declares Jesus' innocence. Twice, the crowd, they just simply refuse to acknowledge his verdict. Pilate's supposed to be the judge, the governor, and they just ignore him. He can't even make Jesus speak to him in the next verses. But his utter impotence is brought home most poignantly and ironically in the dramatic finale, verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. In Aramaic, it's Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. He's convinced Jesus is innocent and yet he is unable to free him. Pilate has the power of life and death. Pilate has the power to order crucifixion or release. But he doesn't have the power to do what he wants to do, what he knows he should do. He's too afraid of the consequences. Do you notice in this passage, three times Pilate declares, I find no basis for the charges against him. 18 verse 38, 19 verse 4 and 19 verse 6. Following the first pronouncement, I find him innocent, he has him beaten and flogged. Following the second and third pronouncement, I I find him innocent, he hands him over to be crucified. What use is all the power in the world, all the power in the world, if you can't do what's right? You're unable to do what you know you should. It does beg the question of me and of you. Do I have the moral courage, the strength to do what I know to be right, to stand for what I know to be true when it's deeply unpopular with those around us when the the bible's view on something is it works just the opposite to the accepted cultural view when what the bible says is seen as offensive when if i am known as someone who believes the bible i will be called offensive can i stand against the crowd can i stand for what is right or defend the bible when others disagree in the trials we face, in the pub after work, on social media, at the family dinner? Or, like Pilate, do I, I'd like to stand up, but I'm just gonna go with the flow. Will I do what's right at work when it comes to how very junior non-core staff are treated? Or when others want to stretch things in what we say to win new business? And the pressure to go with others, to, to just fit in with what I know is wrong and I don't want to do, but it just is enormous. It's not easy then to do what is right. And we must pray for moral courage, to care about truth, to stand for truth. We must seek out others to help hold us accountable, to pray for us, to stand with us. Because all of us face the pressure with the limited power we have. 
to cave in. Pilate, he wields enormous power, but he's unable to do what he wants, what is right. Thirdly, lastly, the ultimate irony for Pilate is that he sits as judge, but he ends up in the dock. It's not Jesus who's on trial. I mean, Pilate has the official position. Pilate is dressed as the judge. Pilate has the armed guards. Pilate has the power to set free or to condemn. Pilate cross-examines Jesus. And at the end, in verse 13, it's Pilate who pronounces sentence. But it's Pilate, for all that, who's on trial. Jesus hints at it strongly in verse 37 as he challenges Pilate. Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. And from that moment on, the question is, Pilate, will you listen to truth? Will you listen to Jesus? Already in John's gospel, we've seen the religious leaders have failed this test. What about Pilate? Will he side with Jesus, with the truth? What he can't avoid to do is to make a judgment. He must decide. He's not in a position where he can sit on a fence or apply for an extension from Brussels. Pilate's got to, you know, he, he, no option there. You've got to decide right now, Pilate. Actually, I find myself having massive sympathy for him, if I'm honest. He's in an impossible bind. But here's the thing. Ultimately, he makes the calculation. The cost of siding with Jesus is just too great. He wants to set Jesus free. He knows Jesus is innocent. But there are other things that he just wants more. And so Pilate is the one who is truly condemned at the end of this passage. As a man of weakness. As a man without moral courage. As a man who will kill Jesus rather than trust him. But as I said at the start, it's actually not just Pilate. It is you and me who John is writing this for. If you uh, turn over to John 20, 31, you find out why John wrote this gospel. He did not write this gospel, 20, 31, to satisfy our curiosity. Uh, Jesus, 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may know what Jesus was like and have enough information to understand what he did. That's not what it says. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote so that you and I would decide whether we will trust in Jesus or reject him. And as we read the account of Jesus' death, as we read the account of his trial, like Pilate, we find ourselves on trial. Will we put our trust in Jesus Or will we, much as we like him, much as we admire him, much as we find much that's interesting about him, ultimately reject him? Like Pilate, we find ourselves not just sitting in the judgment seat, making up our mind, is there enough evidence? Do I, what do I make of Jesus? We also find we are in the dock. See, having died and then risen and then ascended into heaven, it is Jesus who is the judge of all mankind. And it is before Jesus that you will stand one day. And so as we hear his words, we're on trial. Will we reject him or will we trust and believe in him? Now, I've spent uh, many, many years uh, running courses for those investigating the Christian faith. And sometimes at the end of the course, uh, people complete honest questions or Christianity explored. And they decide, 
I'd like to put my trust in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Others don't. Some do, some don't. But the interesting thing is this. Of those who decide not to put their trust in Jesus at the end, I have almost never found someone who has investigated things seriously, completed the course, and said, I just don't find the evidence convincing. I've almost never found someone say that. Rather, the reason that people decide not to follow Christ is the cost is too high. It's not, I don't think there's enough evidence. It's, I'm not prepared to give up, to change. When we realize that Jesus and following him will affect how we run our relationships, spend our money, conduct our business, well then then no matter what we think might be true, the, the temptation is that we just decide, I'm just not willing to do that. Now, people always sign up for these courses because they want to know the truth about Jesus. But the danger is when push comes to shove, we can find that finding the truth matters less to me than doing what I want. But actually, it's an issue not just for those of us considering the Christian faith. It's just as much a challenge for those of us who've been following Christ for years. You know, every time I read the Bible, every time the Holy Spirit speaks as we read his words, we face the same temptation. Will I receive his truth and change accordingly? Or will my response depend on the convenience and the cost, financially, relationally, in terms of popularity and cultural credibility? Is God's word the ultimate authority that shapes our attitudes and behaviors? Or is it just one of the competing voices that we weigh? Jesus calls us to trust him, not just with our sins, but also with our lives, to obey him and let his truth shape us. He also encourages us that he who stood firm in his trial is with us in our trials and he can give us the strength to stand firm for truth. So we don't need to live compromised, fearful little lives like Pilate. We can know the truth and the truth will set us free. See, Pilate is too worried about losing out in this world, sadly, to put his trust in the one who could have given eternal life for the world to come. But thankfully, Pilate's not the central character in this passage. He's the focus, but he's not the central character. There is another person in this passage, one who speaks the truth and does what is right regardless of the cost. One who will continue to do what is true, even if it means his death. But wonderfully, Jesus in this passage is not primarily there as, uh, well, as the opposite of Pilate. Don't be like Pilate, do be like Jesus. That's not the primary thing Jesus tells us in this passage. He's not primarily the example for us to follow, having avoided Pilate. He is the saviour for us to trust. He is the one who will be lifted up on the cross to bear the judgment of death that we deserve. The one who would bring forgiveness and eternal life to sinners like us, to those who are as weak and faithless as Pilate. And the wonderful message of the gospel is that if you trust in this Jesus today, where well, you'll be fully clean. Weak and fearful people who struggle with the truth, who feel the cost, can be washed clean and fully forgiven. Let us pray. Our Father God, as we, as we look at Pilate and see a man who 
who was unable in the end to side with truth. We pray that you would give us the courage to pursue your truth. And we praise you that at the heart of the truth of the gospel is one who does not just call us to follow and to be brave, but one who died to forgive us when we fail. We praise you that at the heart of Easter is not an example to follow, but a sacrifice to forgive us. Amen.